0: You know i think what's going to be really unfortunate but also you know as i've said we're trying to find the positives out of this but there will be a big negative and i think the big negative hit next year for a lot of people i think a lot of businesses will close after march next year when the job keeper ends the debt catches up with everybody and that, you know, there there will be some form of the thing hitting the fan, if you know what I mean.
1: Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to James Broadway. James is a fixture on the Victorian hospitality scene. He is a restaurateur. He's a wine guy. He's a photographer, and he is an owner of Tedesca Osteria, a fixed menu dining experience on the Mornington Peninsula, which he runs with regular collaborator Brigida Hafner. James has also closed a restaurant during the pandemic, the much-loved Gertrude Street Enoteca. James, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Danny. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me on.
1: Ah, It's an absolute pleasure. I know that whenever I eat in your venues, I feel very much cosseted in a hospitality experience. And I know that hospitality is something that you don't just deal out like cards in a poker game, but it's something that you really think about and have strong views on. Could you share a little bit of your hospitality philosophy?
0: Sure. Um, look, right from, right from day one when we opened the Enateca, I guess Brigida and I had sort of talked about what hospitality meant to us and what we wanted to achieve with it and how we wanted our venues to relate to people. And so we always had this idea that our um, venues would treat our staff as intelligent beings who would form relationships with customers and that the, um, you know, the, the hospitality would be natural, not um, rehearsed or performative. It, it would be something genuine, warm, connective and individual for every person that walked in the door. Um, it, it's a pretty simple philosophy. Um, I think you get it. You get it all over the world in great hospitality. But um, it's just something that you can explore to the nth degree if you really go down the rabbit hole of what is hospitality.
1: Well, it, tell us about how that hospitality operated um, at the two businesses that we've started talking about.
0: So I think with with um, Tedesco Osteria, it's been really remarkable. Um, You know, we had this idea of a fixed menu restaurant that would have a small team. Um, You know, we felt that there were so many problems with how the hospitality model works in restaurants where the hours are so long, um, they're so unsustainable in terms of the amount of people that work in kitchens compared to how much the food on the plate is worth um, that, you know, what we wanted was actually an incredibly simple model where the team would bond almost like a family, that we'd all work the same number of hours, that none of us would be overworked. We'd all be like a committed team working together. And so when people walk in to to Tedesca Osteria, they're they're greeted into a place that is clearly a a restaurant, like it's an Osteria. You haven't walked into someone's home, but the same level of warmth is there. You can see the chef's. Standing in the um, the open kitchen, there's a you know they're cooking with fire in front of a beautifully crafted piece of artwork. You can walk up to it. You can say hello to the chefs. Um, we we just respond to everybody as an individual. We don't have a a rote learning. I mean, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one of the things that I have always hated in hospitality is when the first thing a host asks me is. Whether I'd like sparkling or still water, I always feel like that as an entry point to a hospitality conversation is, are you going to spend X amount of money or not? And that's the sort of thing. That's that's the sort of thing we've always really tried to steer away from. Is that sense that um, you've, you've come into our space, we've made it um, in in many ways that entry point as simple as possible, and we we want you to have the experience. It's a shared experience with us, and it's not one where we're trying to sell you things. It's one where we're we're really welcoming you in. So it's you know it's not complicated, but it it requires some intelligence because you have to be able to respond empathetically.
1: Well, <laughs> I feel like this might be the wrong the wrong question, but I know that a lot of people will be wondering it, and it's like, how does this, really beautiful, warm, human-centred approach to hospitality gel with running a business which is at the very least breaking even simply so that you can keep dispensing this beautiful version of hospitality.
0: Well, I'm glad you asked, Dean, because <laughs> we've got two great examples of the Enoteca and the Osteria. And, um, you know, the Enoteca was... You know, on so many levels, such a beautiful place. We've got 17 years of extraordinary memories, Um, customers that came to us for the whole of that 17 years, um, travellers from overseas who came in on their own, would sit at the bar with a book and end up having dinner with the staff. And, you know, it's it's just one of those amazing stories of a place that was all about hospitality but maybe didn't have a great business plan. And, you know, over time... 17 years is enough time for enough things to change that it had become a very difficult place to sustain. You know, rents go up every year, wages go up every year, um, all the operating costs go up every year, but what you make doesn't necessarily go up that much every year. So, I mean, the Antigua is a classic example of a business that was not COVID-proof. Um, it was already marginal and really when COVID came, um, it was inevitable that given we lost 90% of our team because they were visa workers, that we would have been closed till, till now. You know, There's been no point where the Anatech had anything it could do, that we had to sit down and accept that that model was over for us and that it was time to, to let it go. But on the other hand, it's really exciting that we, I feel like Brigitte and I, after 20 years of talking about it, we actually did open a restaurant with what I think is a great business model. Um, and it's a model that when we opened it in January this year and, you know, I really feel so much for Brigida having created this dream of hers, this restaurant that she'd always wanted to cook in and then it was open for less than three months before it got closed again. And, you know, but overcoming it, we'll talk about that later, but it's been actually been such a positive year. But the the thing was we opened a model that ticked all the issues that we understood existed. Like this tiny team, we have seven people on the team. Um, The the overheads are really relatively low, but the product's really beautiful. So the balance between what we can charge for people to come and enjoy our hospitality and the size of the team is far more balanced. Um, It's much more sustainable. Because we're only cooking one menu Every day, there's no, and we know how many bookings we've got because you can only come by booking. Um, we already know how much food to prepare. There's there's basically no wastage, so one of our big things is you know a zero waste restaurant. That's one of the things we're working towards. But all, all these elements sort of add up to a restaurant that I think will reopen exactly as it was closed. We there's almost nothing, Brigitte and Tedesca need to change, to to reopen post-COVID. And I think that's just testament to the fact we talked about it for 20 years before we before we actually did it. Um, yeah.
1: Well, you didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic. So how did you create a COVID-proof restaurant?
0: Because I think COVID-proofing is not dissimilar to um, fixing a lot of the problems that hospitality was already facing. I mean, I think we all know in the hospitality industry that a lot of hospitality is chronically unsustainable. Um, I mean, we've got a few great successful operators in Melbourne, some really amazing people at the, at the big end, and we've got some really marvellous small restaurants that have worked out their models, but I think there's a lot in between that um, are borderline, just like the Enoteca was. Um, and I think, you know, I think what's going to be really unfortunate, but also, you know, as I've said, we're trying to find the positives out of this, but there will be a big negative, And I think the big negative will hit, hit next year for a lot of people. I think a lot of businesses will close after March next year when the job keeper ends, the debt catches up with everybody and the, you know, there'll, there will be some form of the thing hitting the fan, if you know what I mean. Mm.
1: I think you're right. I think... Everybody feels that that is a cliff and um, that there's going to be a lot of fallout, a lot of people tumbling off. Um, And I guess it's really hard to know how much business uh, Victorian restaurants will be able to catch up before then. Um, We know that we're going to go through a summer with restrictions. We don't exactly know what they're going to be. Uh, So um, Tedesca was able to open for a short period in winter. Tell me what that was like and whether you felt that what I mean, were there things that you changed or had to change because of restrictions and, and how did that strike the business?
0: Well, the whole the way the whole year rolled, so we, we opened in the first week of January. We were closed on the twentieth of March. I think I think there were two weeks where we didn't do anything at all. We just we got together and we talked. We we tried to work out a plan and so Brigida and I decided that given we, at that point in time I think we were looking at two to three months of closure there wasn't a there wasn't an exact date and so we decided that all we really needed to do was to create enough money to keep our team you know fed and watered and homed so we had uh, a number of visa workers and a few Australians so luckily some some could get JobKeeper And our goal was to make enough money that basically everyone got their wage and we put the business itself on hold. So we said, we'll do enough food production. We developed the model of the the boxes for the weekend and that was really successful. Um, We kept the team together, which was our goal, and we got through to the next stage, which was the slight loosening when people could come back into the restaurant. So we switched then into a, a bake shop so you know everyone knows Brigitte's baking is pretty legendary so that was easy we told everyone you know next Saturday we're we're, we're stopping the boxes but we're turning into a bake shop and so that was a nice intermediate step where all the people that had been um, basically everyone who had a booking that had been cancelled during the lockdown came to the bake shop they were so excited to see everybody it was like a party Um, we had a queue out to the road which was kind of (laughs) hilarious but you know, maybe not great because I think some people just came to support us but ended up queuing for an hour and a half. But it, it was amazing. So we got through the next four weeks. We got through the next four weeks being a bake shop and that sort of got us ready to, you know, take a week off. We all, we all had a week's holiday to breathe, to reset ourselves, come back knowing that we would open the door and we would be offering hospitality again, which, you know, that's, sort of resetting yourself to greet people and to to take care of them. It takes a little bit of stepping back and rethinking how you want everyone's experience in your restaurant to be as amazing as it can be. So that week was great, we all talked, we all had a break and then we reopened and we had the best weekend of our whole existence. Everyone was so excited <laughs> to come back into the restaurant that everyone who came had an amazing time. Even though we were limited, we I think we were limited to 15 less guests than our maximum, the restaurant actually functioned just as well and it was possibly because people got even better service with less people in the restaurant. I, I don't know exactly what it was, whether it was just people were feeling expansive because they'd been locked up for two months and were excited to get out, but whatever it was, it was a great weekend. It was, it was amazing. And then, of course, we were shut... Before we got to the next weekend, so we've 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 been we've been back on it. We've been back on our lockdown boxes ever since then. Um, but you know, they've they've had their upsides too.
1: I tell you what, I feel so lucky that I've um, been able to come to the restaurant because I I must have been there in the I don't know the first month that you opened, and it's such a memorable meal.
0: I reckon you were there in the first two weeks. Really, it was. <laughs> I think we were still full of smoke when you were there.
1: (laughs) There was a definite a souvenir aroma embedded in um, items of clothing that I was able to take home with me. So, did have you you sorted that out subsequently? Did you?
0: Yeah, we did. It was, uh, I mean, that it was it was sort of hilarious but bad. Um, You know, we we had this amazing wood fired oven system with the open grill, but for the first two weeks there was a. A smoke direction issue, and uh, a few people did go home with smoky jumpers, but uh, it's all good now. It was
1: um, honestly, it didn't detract at all from the experience. It was so beautiful, and you know, as you say, you walk in, you're in, you're in the midst of it already. And Brigitti was over at the you know, like impressive bench with a pasta machine rolling, and there was just such an instant feeling of of hearth and home and welcome, and um, that you know. I was able to be as much part of the experience as I wanted to be. Well, probably, probably if I, you know, asked what started to pick up a knife and chop something, perhaps I wasn't invited that deep into the experience, but it definitely felt, it definitely felt, uh, so so warm, and the food was so beautiful. And I think that sense of the, the the restaurant, where pretty much everything comes in in the morning and it's eaten in the afternoon, it's, it was so apparent. You know, such um, every every item of produce felt so honoured, and you know that it was an honour to then eat it. Uh, so yeah, I feel very lucky to have had that experience. Um, and you know, hopefully it won't be too long before I have it again. Um, which I suppose brings me to the whole concept of reopening and how uh, how much pressure you feel upon that. It's certainly a conversation in Melbourne at the moment. You know, what are we allowed to do when? Um, you know, what summer going to look like? How do you feel about that conversation?
0: Look, we we um, as we did with the first reopening, we didn't try and reopen on the first possible date. We we waited to see how it kind of panned out, and we, we're going to do the same this time we've got um, I think we've got a date of about three weeks from now and there's some possibility of some form of reopening. Um, and then we've got the November date. And so initially the, the stick we'd put in the sand was actually the 26th of November, which was the first date we felt we could commit to. So we, we've kind of opened the restaurant for bookings similar to what we did in May, um, reduced numbers maybe two tables outside, up to 20 inside, keep it simple. Um, and that'll be fine, you know, if we can do that. And I'm, I'm feeling there's a possibility that might move three or four weeks early. And so, you know, the conversation with the team at the moment, of course, is, you know, we're doing these boxes, but it, it's time for us all to start to rethink what it will be to open the restaurant again. And what's what's been amazing about this year is, what COVID did was create time that you wouldn't have ever had otherwise. You know, when when, when you're in hospitality, there's, there's a tendency to pedal pretty hard um, and not necessarily have a lot of philosophical time or planning time and thinking time. And I think, you know, if you were lucky enough as we were to create enough income to sustain everybody, then the year has actually given us other time, which we wouldn't have had. And... You know, some of the exciting things, uh, the one thing we weren't going to do was to attempt to grow our own vegetables. Because, you know, on the peninsula we had some amazing um, small-scale suppliers, biodynamic growers. But COVID actually changed a lot of this um, supply availability. Um, it changed our relationships with people who stopped wholesaling through Melbourne. And just a lot of things changed, Danny. You know, it was amazing just how many different facets of the hospitality industry are changing because of COVID. And so we're, we've really spent a lot of time resetting our relationships. And then this big thing was the decision, we're actually going to you know, grow our own market garden, because we couldn't guarantee going forward the supply of the quality of stuff we'd had previously. And so we had to sort of take control of that situation ourselves. And one of our big projects is this market garden that you'll see next to the restaurant next time you come down. And um, you know, we're working on the on the vineyard that's going to be out the front. Um, we're planning to get together with um, Roger and Sharon from the fermentery and begin a whole kind of fermenting program, so that we can manage our market garden into a sort of year-round sustainable supply. We've got a big plan coming up. You know, to work direct. You know, we're working directly with our suppliers instead of through wholesalers more and more, which was always Brigida's and my goal, but. It's, it's a much bigger job when you do that. There's, there's a lot more work when you go direct with everything. But, you know, one of our things is, you know, to get a whole pig from Katie Brown and go through the whole process of pickling, curing and smoking. And so, you know, we're building a smokehouse. You know, there's just so many things we're doing that we probably wouldn't have done this year. And so it's sort of, you know, I feel a little bit guilty in some ways that we're having a reasonably good time of it. But it's also amazing because... Without COVID, we'd just have all been peddling all year.
1: Hmm. So interesting. What are some of the other changes that you've seen uh, come out of COVID?
0: Um, well, you know, it's there's it's there's been a real, um, I wouldn't say a splintering. this you can really see different aspects of the hospitality industry in the social media conversations that are happening around it, and the approaches people have taken to. Dealing with the situation and the the mental headspace and the um, you know the ability to pivot. I mean, I've been amazed by this industry on the level of their creativity and the fact that how many industries do you reckon you could basically say you're closed as of today, and so many people manage to reinvent themselves within two weeks and create a whole new offering out of out of nothing and build a new business. I mean, it's actually extraordinary. I've watched so many amazing people and been inspired by the creativity. It's been fabulous. Um, and also I, think, also I think there's been a flip side to that, which is there's been a lot of anger in the industry and I think that, you know, I don't know how we deal with, with all that anger. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's there's people out there bleeding massive amounts of money and feeling enormous pain and I don't know how that will heal in the in the near future it's going to be it's going to be a challenging time and I mean as I said to you I, I, I do think it's a time to think about hospitality in itself what what is it that we're all doing why are we doing it who are we offering it to and what is the role of us as hospitality people in the bigger conversations about rebuilding after covid
1: well tell me more about that why are you doing hospitality
0: um, why am i doing it? i i fell into it like a lot of people do but it as a i fell in as a wine person now wine people tend to you know it's it's a real cultural thing wine it's a it's a it's a tool of travel geography conversation culture it's it's a it's a great entry point to hospitality um, but it does tend to put you um, in more of a thinking role, as opposed to a, you know, we, it's it's not it's not like someone that starts importing wine has worked their butts off in kitchens to get to where they are. <laughs> so it's a bit more it's a bit more dilettantish, if you like. So it gives you the ability to look at the hospitality. It looks it gives you that ability to look at it from outside to think about it rather than just be trapped in it and to look at look at it as a bigger picture. So I think you know from my experience, wine people have always had a good overview of hospitality and a real appreciation of hospitality and I'm sort of even seeing you know the next level after that where hospitality as a concept should should really be pervading a lot of other other areas that restaurant people and William Anglis and all of us as a as a community should I, I think we should be talking about COVID failures That hospitality should be playing a bigger part in the rethinking of, and you know, it could start with aged care as the biggest single failure in Australia right now. And if if aged care isn't some form of hospitality, I I really don't know what it is. Mm, That is such
1: a powerful idea. So tell tell me more about what you think, what you're thinking.
0: Well, you know, I I I couldn't help it. I'm I've always been an overthinker, you know. I. I studied architecture and went down the rabbit hole of architectural theory and it always comes back and bites me. I start overthinking everything but I really just started to see the hospitality failures at every level of Australian politics and I was like why aren't we part of this conversation? You know you you can begin with the refugee situation and how we treat those visitors to our shores. You can look at the visa worker situation and how we didn't provide job keeper, and how there was no certainty for them you know I think I think I ran I think you and I spoke on day two of the lockdown and you know we were both like my god what are we doing with the people that are actually 90 90 percent of the workers in so many of our hospitality businesses we're just blowing them off we're we're not offering them hospitality um and then you sort of go further down the line and you you know I, I did a Facebook post where I pointed out you know, because I could see all this anger on Facebook about the hospitality lockdown and I was just looking for the positives coming out of COVID and and one of the most obvious ones was that um, Victoria had housed 7,000 homeless people. Um, They literally, there's no homeless people on the streets at the moment. They've been housed and that there will obviously be enormous pressure on government to keep them housed and I think we need to be part of, pressuring you know that is another form of hospitality Um, homelessness we should be part of their conversation we should be making sure that those people are okay and I think COVID is going to help solve homelessness in Victoria I don't know what happened in other states but I thought it was incredible we took everyone off the streets and housed them until April next year and I that got the most feedback of any post I've ever put on Facebook so many people are excited to hear that in the midst of the lockdown and so it just sort of, you know, it just went on and on for me. Like, where does our hospitality begin? What, what is the difference between the idea of hospitality and something that calls itself an industry? So we've got the, you know, we've got these two things. We've got, you know, we've got the work of making restaurants work, but we've also got this idea of hospitality that we all participate in, that we're all part of this conversation of. And that's, you know, I'm excited to be part of getting that conversation onto that onto that slightly bigger platform where we, you know, we care what hospitality as a state, as a country and as a restaurant we're offering, you know.
1: Well, I love how expansive that idea is and how, you know, how, how big the picture becomes. As I suppose you know there's a distinction you could make between the hospitality industry, which is dispensing food and drink, and you know fitting out a place for that to happen, and then there's this idea of hospitality as 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 real real empathy and an honouring of the person. And I think that's where it becomes really big and really powerful. And I, I mean, if you can you imagine if there was a bit more. Empathy and a bit more honouring of the person in our politics, and you know we're speaking not long after the first U.S. presidential debate, and even to put the word presidential in there seems seems uh, much too uh, I don't know respectful for the rabble that um, that uh, has. Made me <laughs> and yeah, it just made me feel so disappointed, and made me wonder how low we need to um, put our expectations about level of of public discourse and what we can expect from people who uh, aim to quote unquote lead. Um, and look, you know, that's that's just that's just one instance. You could point to failures of leadership in all kinds of arenas. Um, but it's the t- it is that tone, and it is it is I think. You know, this kind of hospitality that you're talking about, it it, and it's what you said right at the start of this conversation where it's about respecting your staff as intelligent beings who are going to have conversations and thoughts of their own. It is a it is a basic respect that you feel will be returned because of the honor that and energy that you're putting into the interaction, isn't it?
0: Well, I think that's that's the uh, that sums it up. And you know, it's interesting you, you you talk about the so-called presidential debate. It'll be interesting next week, I think, if, you, if you're going to watch one, ignore the Trump one, but watch the Kamala Harris one. I'm interested to see how she speaks. I think that's probably the best hope America's got right now is, is the vice president, to be honest. I, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to that debate. Mm.
1: Yeah. What else are you looking forward to, James?
0: No? <laughs> well, I am looking forward to opening. But, you know, I'm, I'm also looking forward to sort of pushing this, these conversations along a little bit. Um, as you know, I was reluctant to come on because I, I, I kind of hate public speaking and this isn't really public speaking, but it's, it, it, it was also a great opportunity because I do think that people um, – we, we need to gather some great voices together and be more vocal. One thing I've noticed during lockdown is that all the voices are given to a small sort of um, business-oriented minority, which is great on that side of things, but the mainstream media don't amplify all these other amazing people. You know, you've got you've got um, the Providence up in Beechworth. You've got Chase Out at OMI. Oh you've got all these people who are actually doing and creating and having this conversation on these great deeper levels. And, you know, in the end... I came on because, you you know, you have obviously spoken to so many of these amazing people and it's a real great thing to be part of this. I think what you're doing is bringing all these amazing voices together. So, you know, I was honoured to be part of it.
1: Mate, I had to bloody twist your arm, though. You didn't. <laughs> if that's what it's like to honour you. <laughs> but anyway, I'm,
0: but, I'm... You know, I... I I found I, I found this amazing article. I mean, one of our one of our close friends at Tedesca is Claire Wright. Now I'm sure you know who Claire Wright is. If, if anyone doesn't, she's um, amazing intellect, uh, a, a well known historian and author, and sometimes guest on things like Q and A. She's a great speaker. Her her partner was the person that built the beautiful craft pieces inside Tedesca restaurant. Um, but she, she's just written an article for Mianjin about the lockdown and it really does, you know, it, I, I read it literally two days ago and it, it was saying all the same things I was trying to connect hospitality to in, in her way as a historian. And I thought, you know, there's so many voices that need to be heard around refugees, you know, visa workers, homelessness, and then, you know, all the way down to you know black lives matter and you know as a hospitality person this is getting you know I'm really looping this a little bit but I grew up in Castlemaine I went to university in Melbourne I don't know how many times I've been on the Castlemaine train after a few drinks with mates or even having a joint on the train with the window open none of us ever got arrested none of us ever got put in jail and I'm just like you know, it's another failure of hospitality. These, uh, you know, hospitality needs to pervade all these conversations, and I think, you know, that's I guess that's where I'm excited to try and say a few things here and there.
1: And just to at least today for people who don't perhaps know what you, I think you're alluding to. So um, Tanya Day, an Indigenous woman who was um, was. Uh, taken off that that train. Um she'd been drinking. She was taken to a police station and she died in custody. So I guess you're saying that um there are inequalities and you don't know how you don't often you don't always know how privileged you are just to make your way through the world. Um and yeah, hospitality is not extended to each of us equally and that is not a good thing. Um James, it's it's um Look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. There are big thoughts um, contained in this conversation and I'm really glad that you drew them out for us. I think there are so many more conversations to be had around hospitality and the role that it can play, not only for the people that work within it and the people that um, love to go to restaurants, but also for the wider wider conversations that we need to have in society. So thank you for um, bringing that to the table today and I look forward to being able to drink some wine and eat some food in your proximity before too long but thanks so much.
0: can't wait to have you back down at Tedesca Danny <laughs> same all right you take care and, 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 yeah and con- con- congratulations on all the amazing work you've been doing during the lockdown. Thank you.
1: this is dirty linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.
0: This is a Deep in the Weeds production.